Well, at this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to the prophecy of Hosea. Hosea chapter 11. And we'll be reading the entire chapter. Let's listen now to God's Word beginning in Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, And I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king, because they refuse to repent. And the sword shall slash in his cities, devour his districts, and consume them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on backsliding from me, Though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt Him. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboim? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. They shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When He roars, then His sons shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria. And I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord." Ephraim has encircled me with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God, even with the Holy One who is faithful. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. We're relying upon God for His help and blessing this morning. Let's turn back to the passage we read. From Hosea chapter 11, focusing our attention this morning upon verse 1, even as we did last evening. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now last evening we reflected upon these verses as they point to the exodus of God's people Israel from out of Egyptian bondage into the wilderness and eventually into the promised land. And how that reflects in itself a picture of salvation for every true believer. The believer's exodus. That even as God by a mighty right hand brought Israel out of slavery 
in Egypt, slavery to Egypt. We saw slavery with Egypt. Slavery to sin and Satan and idolatry. He brought them out through the blood of the Passover lamb. He brought them out with might and strength through the Red Sea on dry land, through the wilderness, and across the Jordan on dry land to conquer that land of promise and to inhabit it as His covenant people. Even so, He's done and will do for every single believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We're told here that when Israel was a child, meaning when the Israelites were in Egypt and they were in bondage and slavery, a picture of what happens to people before their conversion, uh, that He loved them. And out of Egypt, He called His Son. Let my Son go, God said through Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh. Let go my firstborn Son, that He may serve and worship Me in the wilderness. What a picture of individual salvation and of God's faithfulness, though we often in the Christian life find ourselves bent on backsliding. We find ourselves falling short of what we profess and we fall into sin time and time again but the Lord has sympathy stirred up in His heart. His heart churns within Him. He does not execute the fierceness of His anger against us. He does not destroy us. He doesn't give us up. He doesn't hand us over. Uh, He doesn't make us like Adma and Zeboim. Uh, he, He doesn't bring this utter destruction upon us, but rather He sustains us. And having called us, Out of Egypt and out of sin, He roars with a mighty roar and brings us to walk after the Lord and to persevere to the end. What a beautiful picture of the salvation experienced by every true son or daughter of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the eternal Son of God. But this morning, we're going to be looking at a different aspect of this because you see, even as God refused to destroy His people corporately, and He sustained and gave perseverance at least to a remnant of His people, the Israelites, the tribe of Judah. Uh, He sustained that covenant people as a whole as a testimony to the fact that all who trust the Lord are like Mount Zion that cannot be moved. So when we see God's faithfulness to the church as a whole, we can gain confidence as individual children of God that He'll no more or less abandon His church as a whole than He will the individual believer. And we saw that. But what we're going to see is really the other side of the coin here this morning. And that is that what's described for us in Hosea chapter 11 of God calling out Israel from bondage in Egypt and then Israel walking in... uh, repeated unfaithfulness to the commands of God, and yet God not destroying them, He chastens them, and so on and so forth, that in the course of those events, there were many people who were part of the corporate covenant community. There were many people who, like Romans 9 tells us of the unconverted Jews in Paul's day, members of the old covenant people of God, to them was the adoption, their outward sons and daughters of God, yet they went to hell. Yet they were not truly converted. They came out of Egypt physically 
spatially, geographically, outwardly, but their hearts remained in Egypt. Or we could say Egypt remained in their hearts and they took Egypt with them. Kind of like Lot's wife. She accompanied the group that was leaving Sodom and she was not physically, outwardly in the city of Sodom when God rained down fire and brimstone. She was with the people of God, but her heart was in Sodom, so she looked back to Sodom and she was destroyed with Sodom in a discriminating judgment of God that included not just the people in Sodom, but some who were outwardly associated with the professing people of God. And so it's important for us to recognize that as much comfort as we received last night, that God called every true child of God out of Egypt and gives us gracious perseverance to the end, yet we cannot ignore the flip side. In fact, I would argue even the greater emphasis of Hosea chapter 11, which is a warning to those in the corporate covenant community, those who have the adoption outwardly, those who are like the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son, who represent the Pharisees, the hypocrites among the Jewish people. And in that parable, the father who represents God as a heavenly father, he says to that older brother, you're my son. All that I have is yours. There are these outward privileges that you have. Uh, but you need to come into the feast and celebrate. You, you need to come. You need to enter. And you need to be saved. He pleads with him. He has sonship outwardly, but he doesn't have it inwardly. And that's a constant theme in the Old Testament and in the book of Hosea, chapter, especially chapter 11. So we need to recognize Many of the people that left Egypt as God's firstborn son were actually children of the devil. And that's a staggering thought. That someone can be gathered with the people of God who collectively have been brought out of idolatry, out of immorality, out of the world. And you can be gathered here this morning. And you're here. You're among the the corporate professing body of Christ that's been brought out of the world. You're not at home watching the pregame and worshiping football or whatever it is. You're here. You're not at home with a hangover because you got drunk last night. Okay, You're not waking up in the bed with somebody you're not married to. Um, You're here in church among the people of God who have been saved, as it were, from the house of bondage, and yet that house of bondage remains in your soul. Egypt remains within your breast. The church in the New Testament, uh, in substance, very similar to the old, is a mixed multitude. And you recall in the book of Numbers that this is the presentation, this is the description of God's people that were brought out of Egypt that it was a mixed multitude. In fact, there was a mixed multitude of Egyptians that came out with them, and they began to influence the people of God, the Israelites, and you began to see many of the Israelites joining forces with the mixed multitude and being conformed to the pattern of Egypt, thereby revealing that in the old, as well as Jesus says in the new, that God's covenant people is a field of wheat and tares. And part of preparing for communion is self-examination. And this is crucial for us to recognize this. 
If you look at 1 Corinthians 10, you'll see that Paul emphasizes this even to a New Covenant Christian church. You see there are many uh, Reformed Baptist brothers and sisters that we love and they have many good things to say and we join with them in outreach and ministry at many levels and we have much in common with them. And so we want to stress that. But many of these Reformed Baptist brethren begin to speak about the New Covenant Church as if it's only the elect, as if it's only regenerate believers. And that the, the, the true New Covenant people of God is not a mixed multitude, it's all elect people. And they sort of have ways of um, navigating that type of claim. Uh, but I think even though they might acknowledge that many who gather in the corporate worship assembly are unconverted, they try to maintain that the membership of the church is pure or ought to be pure, and there's so much ambiguity that I think it it does a great disservice to the biblical doctrine of the church and causes many people to presume, well, I'm in a Reformed Baptist church. The elders saw fruit of conversion. I was baptized on profession of faith, and therefore, I'm good. And therefore, our church is good. And so, maybe we don't need to evangelize covenant members because they shall all know me. And they're all converted and they're all elect. And it gives a wrong impression. Whatever may be the intent of these things, you know, sometimes you get the sense that uh, Reformed Baptists, you know, it's like if you look, maybe you go somewhere for Thanksgiving and um, you have trail mix, you know. And uh, in the Old Testament, it was a mixed, you know, it was a trail mix. You have M&Ms and checks and all these different things, uh, peanuts and almonds or whatever. Um, you have these things in the, in the, in the mix. And... Uh, you can see it's clearly mixed. There are more than just peanuts inside the bowl. But you get the sense for the many Reformed Baptists, they would look at the New Testament church and in some sense, in terms of uh, the way that they preach evangelistic sermons in many cases and, and the way that you often hear them uh, you know, loving the teachings of Spurgeon and those who historically have really brought evangelistic messages to covenant members, you get the sense that they almost acknowledge, well, all the same pieces are in the bowl. All, there's, there's still checks and M&Ms, um, but only the peanuts are true members, right? And so it's not actually that the situation has changed, but they have this very odd way of now saying, well, but only the peanuts are church members. But what does that really accomplish? I mean, at the end of the day, if the people gathering and professing the name of God and worshiping Him were a mixed multitude in the old, and they're a mixed multitude in the new, what does it actually accomplish uh, to try and make these distinctions and say, well, but some are members and some aren't? Because at the end of the day, how do you know who the elect people are? How do you know who the peanuts are? How do you know who the wheat is versus the tares? Uh, the apostles themselves, when the Lord Jesus Christ said, one of you will betray me, they, they were more inclined to think, is it I, than to say, it's Judas. So are church leaders today wiser than the apostles? Surely we can know a tree by its fruit to an extent, but are we thinking that elders of the church can know for sure that every church member is truly elect? If that's the case, why would we ever excommunicate people? I mean, you start to think about this. It doesn't make any sense. 
But 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that the very same dynamic that's true in the Old Testament carries over into the New. In fact, the example of Israel coming out as a mixed multitude where in fact most of them were unconverted and most of them never reached Canaan and most of them died in the wilderness, that that same dynamic uh, more or less applies in the New Testament. Certainly the warning of that is made to the New Testament professing church. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 10, Moreover, brethren. So he's speaking to New Covenant church members. He says, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. He doesn't say, you know those old covenant people of God that were part of a different covenant and they were Israelites and they had circumcision, but we're a totally different covenant people. The church, it's a new covenant in every sense. It's, it's got a, a totally different uh, arrangement in every respect. Okay, he doesn't say that. He says that the Israelites are our forefathers. Corinthian Gentiles are to look to the children of Israel coming out of Egypt in the Exodus as their fathers. And so Paul's saying, brethren, fellow church members who are in continuity with the old covenant people of God, he says, all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. This is a reference to Israel coming out of Egypt under the Exodus and then through the Red Sea on dry land. He says, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Even the infants were baptized. The, the, uh, interesting. All were baptized. You see the point here that he's making. That the old and new covenant people of God are part of the same church that spans the ages. All were baptized into Moses under the, uh, in the cloud and in the sea, the Red Sea. Uh, they weren't submerged, by the way. They weren't uh, dunked into the water. That happened to God's enemies. They, they were submerged, but in fact... God's people might have been sprinkled with some of the water that was coming off of the walls of water on either side, um, but they were not submerged. They were baptized, but they were not immersed. All ate the same spiritual food, a reference to the manna, and all drank the same spiritual drink, a reference to the water that came out of the rock. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now, if Christ is the rock of salvation to the old covenant people of God, and He's the rock of salvation to the new covenant people of God, then these are not substantially two different covenants, but two administrations of the same covenant of grace from Genesis to Revelation. Old Testament saints were saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the rock of salvation. Psalm 95. Uh, let us, let me look this up, but let, let us bow, let us kneel before the Lord our God, our Maker. Refers to the Lord in the Old Testament. Um, verse 1 of Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord, let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Old Testament, Christ was the rock of salvation. New Testament, Christ is the rock of salvation, but isn't it interesting? Psalm 95 goes on to say, Today if you will hear His voice, harden not your hearts as in the rebellion in the wilderness. For they did not enter because of unbelief. And I said to them, You shall not 
enter my rest. So there's a substantial continuity between the Old and the New Testament people of God. This was a problem coming out of Egypt. It's a problem today. The mixed nature of the church, the reality of nominal Christians, just as there were nominal Israelites, hypocrites, people who are not what they profess to be. And you can see in uh, 1 Corinthians 10 following the next verse, but with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Then he lists a bunch of sins by which the people exposed their unregenerate hearts. Then he says, verse 11, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So in the New Testament, it's just as much of a threat. Uh, Perhaps it shouldn't be because of the greater promises and privileges and the greater outpouring of the Spirit. And Jeremiah 31 certainly points us to the fact that the the ceiling on the new covenant is much higher and the, the basement is much higher. And there ought to be less examples of nominal hypocrisy in the church, but in reality, in Corinth and throughout much of the professing church today, because we don't take the new covenant as seriously as we should, the fact is, it's an example for us. The Old Testament saints, in which most of them were unconverted, is an example and a warning even to us, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. He goes on and he says this, I think this is important. This is one of those verses we need to take seriously as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now that's not some kind of uh, Dutch super spiritual hyper-Calvinist verse that says if you haven't had a Damascus Road conversion, you shouldn't be at the Lord's table and then only five people come to the table out of 500 or something like that. Okay, that's not what it's saying. Uh, let him who believes that he's saved uh, you know, come to grips with the fact that assurance is really presumption. That's not exactly what it's saying. Um, I hope that every believer, and I think the Lord urges every believer to make their calling and election sure. If you're a true Christian, you should think that you're standing, right? You should believe that you stand with the Lord Jesus Christ in the judgment and that your sins are forgiven. That there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus and that you're in Christ Jesus. Of course, that's the goal. But clearly what he's saying here is that there are many presumptuous people that were in the Old Testament and in the New, and they think they're standing, but they don't take the time to examine whether they're standing. They don't take the time to examine themselves, and so they're living in idolatry, sexual immorality, they're tempting Christ, they're really living a life of unbelief and uh, ungodly fear and worldliness and covetousness. They're complainers. Uh, you know, you go through the various sins that are mentioned here, and you recognize that there are many people that think, oh yeah, I'm saved. I'm good to go. There are many who think they stand, and yet they need to examine themselves. And if you're a true Christian, it's not going to hurt you to take heed. It's not going to hurt you to examine yourself. Um, 
I mean, I examine myself all the time. I'm always checking to see if my mic's on during the singing, okay? It doesn't hurt because there's that one time when you forget and then, you know, the whole Facebook community anyway. But you need to examine yourself, okay? It helps to examine yourself. It helps to know what the situation is with your soul uh, day in and day out. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Nothing's going to hurt a true believer uh, simply by examining themselves in the light of the Scripture, in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ, His promises, His truth, uh, His commandments, uh, His finished work. All of these things come into play for, for a, a, a balanced recipe of self-examination. So we need to recognize this. Not everyone who was called out of Egypt in the Exodus was converted, and not everybody who's been called out of the world into the visible church is truly saved. Now, according to our text, these nominal Israelite children of God witnessed the grace of God on display time and time again in the wilderness, and then in the subsequent generations after the wilderness, down through the ages, we can read about it throughout the Old Testament, they witnessed the grace of God on display in the visible church through signs, wonders, miracles, God saving people, and all these kinds of things, yet it was to no avail. Uh, I alluded to Psalm 95, and it's just interesting the way that this is put here at the very end. Verse 10, For forty years I was grieved with that generation, and said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now when it says, they do not know my ways, understand that's not ignorance. Uh, If it's ignorance, it's willful ignorance. Because you go back to verse 9, it says, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. They saw the gracious, generous goodness of God toward His people throughout His dealings with them in Egypt, after Egypt, in the wilderness, in the promised land of Canaan. Generation by generation, they saw it, they witnessed it, but they didn't know it. They didn't care about it. They didn't observe it attentively and take the lesson from it. It's like the people who watch Jesus preaching and teaching and doing miracles, giving sight to the blind, raising the dead, doing all of these things and and multiplying bread. But at the end of the day, all they really cared about was give us this bread always. We want more bread. We want more bread. They didn't understand the, the true meaning of the grace of God that was on display before them. This is true in Hebrews chapter 6. A warning once again to covenant members of the visible church of the New Testament. He says, verse 4, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good Word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away. In other words, they see these works, they taste something of 
the outward observation and experience of what God is doing to save people in the church, to provide for His church, to protect His church. They see God's providence. They see God's grace. They taste something of the outward benefits of it. And yet, if they fall away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again to themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. Now that's not talking about a person losing their salvation because verse 9, Beloved, we're confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. So for those that had the things that accompany true salvation, they're not falling away. They're not losing their salvation. But for those who are nominal Christians, as Jesus says in the parable, even what they have will be taken from them those outward privileges that they abused, that they did not cling to and use as, as it were, stepping stones. God's goodness leading them to repentance. Now, in Hosea 11, you see a number of these gracious works of God that were on display among the visible church of Israel. You can see verse two, verses 1 and 2 that God called them. God called them. He called them outwardly as a people out of Egypt. He removed the yoke from their backs. He saved them from their oppressors. He called them. He revealed to them His promises, His character. He revealed His name, Jehovah. He revealed His love as a father through His instruction of them at Mount Sinai, giving them His law, and through the wilderness, chastening them as a father chastens his children. He spoke to them through Moses and Aaron. He called them by His Word, revealing to them the the content of His special revelation that, that was unique to all the nations of the world. They heard the voice of God from the midst of the mountain and the fire declaring God's law. Declaring it to a people that were outwardly called out of Egypt. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of, the house, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That outward calling. Jesus says that many are called and few are chosen. Last night we looked at this call as an effectual call for the elect among the Israelites. But for those Israelites who did not see and know and appreciate God's gracious works in the midst of His people, This was merely a general call. He called to them, but they would not listen. Many were called, but few were chosen. Do you understand and appreciate the value of the call of the Gospel that many people in this world never hear? That There are many thousands of unreached people groups throughout the world that have never seen a Bible, have never heard the Gospel, have never heard the name Jesus Christ presented to them. There are many people that have heard the name Jesus Christ uh, from the Latter-day Saints and other cults and false religions that have proclaimed a soul-damning, deceptive gospel of works and idolatry. But you have the call of the gospel. You have the law of God. You have the promises of God in Jesus Christ presented to you. You've been invited to the wedding feast you have opportunity to take hold of the wedding garment of Christ's righteousness. These people had that call 
And they heard it not just from the Lord at Mount Sinai, but they heard it through Moses and Aaron, verse 2, and they called them. God rose up early, as it were, and sent forth His prophets and proclaimed this call to the Israelites again and again and again, but they went from them. They went from them. They heard it, and there are people in the church. John says that they, 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 they were with us, but they went out from us because they were not of us. They heard the message. They came to church time and time again, and then they went out from us. They went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals. Baal means Lord. God says, I am the Lord thy God which have brought thee out. No, we're going to sacrifice to these other lords and gods and objects of worship. Baal. They sacrificed to Baal and burned incense to carved images. We're told also that they witnessed the Lord teaching His people. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms. You see the beautiful parental image that God is a loving Father of His son Israel, His firstborn son. And when Israel was a child, He loved him. And He taught him. He instructed him. He taught him how to walk. He helped him to take his first steps and took him by the arms. Because you know a child, when it's first walking, it needs help. It needs support. It needs training wheels, as it were, like on a bicycle. And the Lord tenderly, graciously attended to all the needs of His covenant people and presented them with all the truths that they needed. And He taught them and instructed them and took them by the arms, leading them and guiding them. But they did not know that I healed them. Coming out of Egypt, we're told that there were many diseases of Egypt that the Lord healed His people from. And He said, if you walk with Me, then you will not experience these plagues, these diseases of Egypt. We could look in throughout the Old Testament. This is mentioned on multiple occasions. So the Lord physically healed them. When the people complained and they were bit by serpents and Moses raised up the snake on the pole, a picture of Christ who became sin for us on the cross to crush the serpent's head, and they looked to it, the Lord healed them. But you see, right after that, they're back into the the old Egyptian mode of lusting and craving and complaining and rebelling. The Lord healed them, but it's as if they just totally forgot. Or they didn't recognize that it was the Lord that healed them. You know, the Israelites kept that snake on a pole. They kept it around even into the days of the kings and the prophets. Later in the historical books, you find, I think, was it Hezekiah or somebody had to get rid of that thing, uh, Nehushtan. Nehushtan, they called it. And they worshipped it because they didn't recognize, they didn't know that it was the Lord that healed them. They thought that it was this sort of superstitious snake on the pole. It's like people who uh, have this superstitious attachment to the symbol of the cross when in reality, it's Christ on the cross that saved them, not some sort of uh, rabbit's foot talisman that that they you know, rub and, and you know, light candles and, and so on and so forth. They did not know that I healed them. Uh, in other words, they didn't attribute the blessings that they had to God Himself. And how common is that? How common is that 
among nominal Christians that they're enjoying God's blessings and the benefits, but they're not attributing it to God. Also, we're told that He gently drew them. Verse 4, now we said this is true of the effectual call of believers, but it's also true in a general sense for the covenant people of God. That He was gentle and careful leading Israel out of Egypt. He took them in a certain uh, path to the promised land, if you'll recall, where they could avoid being attacked by certain enemy nations. Uh, He took them not the way I think it is of the Philistines because they were not ready for war. He understood. He didn't give them a burden that was impossible to bear. He was gentle and sensitive and careful leading Israel out with gentle cords. He caused the Egyptians to give them gold and precious stones and silver and all of these things. Uh, He attended to all of their needs. He drew them with gentle cords and bands of love. He was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. He stooped and fed them. Do you see how gracious and condescending, not in a bad sense, but in a good sense, the Lord is, as it were, humbling Himself to kneel down and spoon-feed His covenant people all that they need. All that they need. They have the law. They have the Gospel. They have food and clothing. They have direction. They have a land of inheritance. They have all of these reasons. Every reason to put their trust in the Lord. And that's true of every visible church member. You have every reason to believe in Christ. The Lord has been faithful to you. The Lord has not in any way done anything unjust or unrighteous or unfair. He's not been negligent in any way whatsoever. Reminds us of the polemic that we find in Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. He says, verse 31, referring back to the Exodus and beyond, O generation, see the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel? Or a land of darkness? Could be translated thick darkness. Why do my people say we are lords? We will come no more to you. He goes on to say, My people have forgotten me days without number. Enjoying the benefits, the gifts, rejecting, ignoring, despising the giver. God was not a wilderness to Israel. God turned the wilderness into a paradise by giving them food and water and protection and a tabernacle of meeting in which He communed with them. They could see the, the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day, visual tokens, miraculous tokens of God's presence. There's something that, although certainly it would have been no fun to live in the wilderness, there's something about that I think that's even attractive for us as we think about it. What would it, what would it be like to live a week in the wilderness? I know there would be a lot of outward creature comforts that we would be denied, but to see the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day, to see these mighty, miraculous works of God. Uh, There's something desirable about that. They had that. Of course, we have things that are far greater, but but in a sense, you see the, the, the ingratitude on their part. They also saw the Lord 
drawing elect sinners to salvation, drawing them with gentle cords and bands of love, removing the yoke of sin and guilt from them, and so on. They're seeing these things. And they're seeing uh, the blessings, but not the source of the blessing. Now, nevertheless, these nominal children of God, uh, despite all of God's goodness, uh, would have none of Him. We, we sang that in Psalm 81. God gives them everything. He offers them even more. And they would have none of Him. And you would think at this point, the Lord would utterly destroy them. But God doesn't do that. He says, I'm not a man. I don't change my mind. I don't fail to keep my word. He's as, as one who swears to his own hurt and does not change. God will not execute the fierceness of His anger. He will not again destroy Ephraim. And that's true not only in the wilderness, it's true on through the generations of the Israelites, uh, even down uh, to the days of Hosea. God is filled with compassion. He refuses to cast off His people entirely. And you see this verse 5. The Lord emphatically declares... He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but rather Assyria, the Assyrian, shall be his king. Now what's he saying here? He's saying Israel's not going back to what it was. Israel will be chastened and disciplined by the king of Assyria, but the the nation as a whole, you'll notice later some of them are having to come back from captivity in Egypt, verse 11. So some of them ended up in Egypt and we could pursue that further. There's some examples of that. But for the most part, he doesn't send them as a nation back to Egypt. Uh, He sends them to Assyria to chasten them, to humble them. And there are many passages even in Hosea that speak of a future regathering of Israel even from Assyria. You can see it throughout Isaiah. You see it throughout Hosea. You see it in many of these prophetic books. And we don't have time to consider that. Certainly, that will be fulfilled with the regathering of the Jews in the future through the Gospel. But He doesn't send them back to Egypt. Uh, His people as a whole are not discarded and sent in retrograde motion back to where they came from and the Lord moves on. He doesn't utterly destroy them. He chastens them. And this, this is reflected uh, at the end of Micah's prophecy. Micah chapter 7 and verse 12. This restoration. In that day they shall come to you from Assyria and the fortified cities, from the fortress to the river, from sea to sea, from mountain to mountain. Yet the land shall be desolate because of those who dwell in it and for the fruit of their deeds. Uh, He goes on, uh, verse 15, As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them wonders. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall put their hand over their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. Uh, He goes on, verse 18, Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity. In other words, what he's saying is they'll come back from Assyria. I'm going to restore them. I'm not going to send them to Egypt as if there's no hope. I'm going to send them to Assyria and eventually there will be this restoration. So it's a chastening, not a destruction. 
And Micah says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over the transgression of the remnant of His heritage? He does not retain His anger forever, but because He delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. And you see, that's what Hosea is describing, the Lord's compassion, which fails not. Though He's angry with His people, though He's angry with these hypocritical, nominalistic sinners who profess great things, but none of them exalt the Lord, though He's angry, He doesn't finally or fully cast all of them away. There are some of them that will be saved. The Lord does not merely save the prodigals that run off into the foreign land. He also saves the elder brothers, the pharisaical hypocrites, the nominal Christians within the visible church. He doesn't just go out and save the stray sheep in the wilderness, but He saves the lost coin inside the house. God is a God who saves not only Philippian jailers, but Saul of Tarsus as well. Uh, One who was lost inside the covenant community rather than one who was lost outside the covenant community. The Lord proclaims peace to those who are near and peace to those who are far off. And so this is a call to repentance and faith to those who are in the visible church. Those who gather with the worship assembly. Those who, yes, are those who have the wrath of God abiding upon them, but the Lord says there are many among them that I will yet gather and save. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not destroy you. I will not come with terror. Now, for those who refuse to repent, yes, He will execute the fierceness of His anger. But the point here is, there's still a call of salvation that comes. Psalm 95 ends with an exhortation to the people singing the psalm in the days far beyond the days of Joshua and Caleb and Moses, far beyond even the days of David. Everyone who sings that psalm is called to enter the Lord's rest through faith. To repent of their sin, though they be in the outward covenant people of God, though they have entered into the outward rest of Canaan, yet they are to strive to enter spiritual rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is still a call of salvation. And we see that in Hosea 11. Astonishingly, the Lord continues to plead with them. He continues to call His nominal children out of spiritual Egypt. He does it time and time again. We can see this in Hosea 11, uh, where this time, you get to the end of the psalm. Verse 10, they shall walk after the Lord. Okay, well, how's that going to happen? How are they going to go from running away from the Lord, backsliding from the Lord, to now walking after the Lord, following the Lord? How's that going to happen? Well, he says, He will roar like a lion. When He roars, then His sons shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria. And I will let them dwell in their houses. This is saying the backslidden children of nominalistic faith who are 
drawing near outwardly, but their hearts are far from the Lord, there is hope of salvation. The lion of the tribe of Judah lets forth a mighty roar of the call of salvation and of the Gospel. And when He roars, there are many of God's elect sons that are yet in their nominalistic hypocrisy, but they hear it and they return. They've been sent to Assyria. They've been sent, as it were, to Egypt. Although again, there's so many nuances there, we just don't have time for that. But they've been sent far away as a chastening for the spiritual Egypt that dwells in their hearts, and yet it's called out of them, and they're called out of it. And they regather to the Lord their God. This is the pleading that you find of Jesus with the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He issues the seven woes to the nominal hypocritical Pharisees in the church. He, he issues all of these condemnations, but then He says, oh, that you would come to Me. His heart is churned within Him. His sympathy is stirred up within Him for those who yet dwell in Egypt spiritually. Verse 37 of Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. He goes on to say, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a, that's a promise there that we could spend time on. But Jesus pleads with them. Romans 10.21, God stretches out His hands all day long to a rebellious and disobedient people. He's calling them. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20. Paul says that the, the preachers of the Gospel especially are the ambassadors of Christ pleading on behalf of God. Now then we are ambassadors of Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Pleading. Urging. Desiring. Churning with compassion and zeal that sinners may be saved. Think of the father pleading with the prodigal son. All that I have is yours. I've given you all these outward benefits and blessings. Let this goodness and kindness and long-suffering lead you to repentance. So I give you this exhortation, nominal child of God. Nominal children of God within the visible church Is today the day of your salvation? Is today the day of your spiritual exodus when the Lion of the tribe of Judah lifts up His voice with a mighty roar and says, repent. Repent of your sin. Turn from sin and self and the foolish self-confidence and self-righteousness of thinking you're going to be acceptable to God. Turn away from the ways and methods of this wicked spiritual Egypt that surrounds us. Turn from your sin. Turn back to the Father's house. Come to Me, all you who weary and heavy laden. And I will remove that yoke from your neck. I will draw you with gentle cords. I am meek and lowly of heart. I'll teach you and instruct you and give you rest 
for your soul. You have a choice between death and life. Between cursing and blessing. Choose life. By the grace of God is today the day of your spiritual exodus. And if it's not the lion's roar, will it be the gentle chords and bands of His love, of a Savior who's nailed to the cross and He cries out against His enemies, His foes, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The the gentle heart of love of the Lord Jesus Christ is this the day when His love melts your heart and draws you to spiritual exodus. And is this the day that you'll be able to look back on and say, as it were, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. Today was the day when the love of God melted my heart and He called me out of Egypt unto Himself. Let's pray. Lord God, we are weak. You are strong. We have no power and no authority to convert sinners out of their sin, unbelievers out of their unbelief, the impenitent out of their impenitence. We can simply issue the call and then plead to the Lord of the harvest to give the increase, to cause the seed of the kingdom to take root downward and bear fruit upward even a hundredfold, to cause those who think they stand and who ought to take heed lest they fall, to take heed and to stand through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We beg You, O God, even as we plead with sinners, we plead with the Savior of sinners that You would bring forth true hearts of faith here today, that You would call Your sons out of Egypt, and that You would bring them through the wilderness of this life into everlasting joy in Your holy courts above. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.